Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. I asked the Prime Minister, how good is Australia? Please explain. Mate, this is just impossible. Too many people were confused. Uh, You bet you are. Uh, You bet I am. I have always believed in miracles. That's not a policy. Not now, not ever. I mean... These comments are completely inappropriate. I'm sure she's right. But I ain't spending any time on it. How pathetic. You're a classic space invader. Disgusting, mud-sucking creatures. You should be ashamed of yourselves. Oh, fair shake of the sauce bottle, mate. Case of democracy, very good. Hello, and thanks for joining the ANU Canberra Times Meet the Author series, which is also destined to become an episode of Democracy Sausage Extra, ANU's very popular podcast series. I'm Mark Kenny from the Australian Studies Institute here at the ANU, and I'm also part of the School of uh, Politics and International Relations. Let me begin by acknowledging the country, the original custodians of the land on which we meet, the Ngunnawal people, and pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging. And for those of you who were ready for this event last week, I apologise for being unwell. I certainly uh, did not wish to postpone it, but I was uh, literally unable to do it. So I, I thank you for hanging around and joining us again this week. I can assure you that nobody was more disappointed than me because I have very much been looking forward to meeting our guest this evening, evening, author, sports writer, columnist, literary editor, triple Walkley Award winner and all-round beacon of civilization, Malcolm Knox. Malcolm, welcome to the ANU, if only virtually, and to this combined Meet the Author slash Democracy Sausage Extra event to discuss your latest offering, Truth is Trouble, The Strange Case of Israel Folau, or how free speech became so complicated. Thanks, Mark. Thanks very much for having me, and I hope to uh, I hope to remain a beacon for you for the next hour. <laughs> um, now, I was captivated by this book, I might say, and I say that with uh, you know sort of a pen to that, a bit of a confession, and that is that it was initially with a degree of trepidation that I sort of waded back into this issue. If I'm honest about it, I found it pretty tawdry. Uh, as an issue at the time, I found it uh, difficult to, you know, to, to enjoy being engaged in. And I suspect there's there's a common reason for that between that feeling I had and the reason you felt you needed to write a book. And that is that it's full of, of kind of ambiguity and it leaves many of us, particularly those of us with journalistic training, who are very much into the idea of free speech uh, and and freedom of expression I mean, I, I guess everyone is, but journalists professionally are, are interested in, in that free flow of information um, and yet also feel that uh, there was some other, you know, quite negative social forces involved in this. So it's not an easy issue to categorise. Is that Am I right in saying that was one of the key reasons why you embarked upon this book? Yeah, and um, when you say... Um 
you were you were unable to enjoy engagement um, with it. I think that was a common feeling. That that was certainly something I shared. Uh, what do we, you know, what what is an issue that we enjoy being engaged with? Well, probably something where we we feel we have some clarity uh, about the, the issues and where we stand in relation to them, um, and certainly to see if you're a believer in in free speech as a, you know, as a broad principle um, or if you feel that there is some kind of existing social consensus on it, um, to have uh, those principles sort of turn back on you um, as if, you know, it was kind of the, the head of the snake eating its own tail. Um, uh, it's challenging and um, uh, when it comes to the particular issue of, of Israel Folau, which I'm sure we'll go into in, in more detail. Um, it was also hard to, um, you know, enjoy if that's if that's the right word, because for me, I was always put into a position where I was questioning uh, what I felt previously. So the um, the the uncertainty around it um, was, you know, something again that really challenged me and um, to be surrounded by people who had positions of great certainty um, was a challenge, but it also um, ultimately made it, it feel to me as if it was something worth um, unpacking further and further as, as time went by. Yeah, that's, that's absolutely right. And I think you've done that admirably. Um, but going to the point about uncertainty, it's not uncertainty is, I guess, by definition, not something we feel comfortable with and we like to work through an issue. Sometimes, and some people rush to a conclusion very quickly, uh, other times we might work methodically through the pros and cons of an issue and we arrive somewhere. But this issue even denies us that to some extent because, uh, because of sort of cross-currents values on, on either side that, um, that we might hold with uh, some degree of preciousness um, and, and yet feel that we don't stand fully on one side of the fence or the other. And as we all know, that's, a, that's an uncomfortable place to be. Perhaps we could begin um, by just you giving a, a bit of an outline on the basics of the Flower case, just so that particularly because uh, I'm thinking uh, we have Democracy Sausage subscribers uh, who live, uh, who reside overseas and perhaps will be less familiar uh, when they're listening to this than perhaps the people we have watching tonight. Um, so maybe if you could just give us a bit of a, a potted history of the Flower issue and, and then we'll take sure. it from there. Sure. I think the issue um, means nothing unless um, you put it against the context of the same-sex marriage plebiscite in Australia in 2017, uh, which resulted in uh, a vote in favour of um, uh, reforming the law to, to enable same-sex marriage. Israel Folau was a rugby player who represented Australia. He was the highest profile player in that sport. He had a profile that um, he had gained from uh, being uh, a star player in rugby league. Uh, he had gone to the AFL um, uh, where he drew a lot of publicity and um, he then moved to rugby union. You know, two things. One is the rugby union was a sport and remains a sport that has um, extreme financial challenges and is probably more dependent on its corporate sponsors um, than the other major football codes. 
Um, and Israel Folau himself uh, was a Polynesian player um, who uh, is important uh, to Australian rugby in the sense that uh, it is the, the, the code of choice um, for tens of thousands of, of young Polynesian sports people who the code needs to attract. Um, so there was a kind of a, a dual financial dependence going on there. Israel Folau in 2018 responded to a social media post about same-sex marriage to, um, to condemn homosexuality. Uh, he was counselled by Rugby Australia at the time. Two parties emerged with, with different um, ideas of what had been the result of their counselling. Uh, Rugby Australia um, took the position that they had warned Falau that if he did it again, he was putting his job at risk. Um, Falau didn't come out of that meeting with the same understanding. Uh, a year later, uh, in April 2019, um, Falau, he didn't quite repeat the initial um, transgression, which was which was a, um, a response in his own word, gay people would go to hell. Um, this time he posted um, a meme that he had borrowed from the United States that listed... Uh, a number of uh, sinners, if you like, and said uh, at, at the end of it, he said um, that they were uh, destined to go to hell. And this was in response to um, a law changing uh, in Tasmania that Falau had read about in April 2019 uh, that um, allowed individuals to um, change their their, their sex uh, retrospectively if they had become uh, transgender um, at a later point in life. Falau didn't approve of that, um, said he was quoting the Bible um, and his defence um, when uh, the, the uh, predictable um, uh, reaction occurred to his post, his defence was that he was quoting directly from the Bible and uh, he, he had never and could never um, and make an undertaking to not uh, 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 quote God's word. Um, the dispute between Israel Folau and Rugby Australia went on for some months in 2019. Seems like about 10,000 years ago now. Um, uh, but it ended uh, in December that year uh, with um, the union's decision to, to sack him, uh, to, to strip him of his job, um, settled uh, without going to court, unfortunately. Um, he received a settlement from Rugby Australia uh, and the, the matter, um, in as far as Israel Folau was concerned, ended there. Um, however, it had dovetailed in the meantime with the um, going back to the same-sex marriage debate, uh, as you know, a um, quid pro quo, if you like, that man Malcolm Turnbull uh, initially threw out to the 30-odd percent of Australians who had voted against uh, the same-sex marriage reform. Uh, um, the quid pro quo was the promise of a debate about a religious freedom bill um, that would take submissions from the public on the idea of privileging religious uh, speech above other forms of speech and um, to the extent that um, uh, speech, if made in the name of religion, uh, could be protected uh, if, even if it vilified people under, uh, you know, the existing um, anti-discrimination provisions of the law. 
Um, one of the uh, the main lobby forces in that was the Australian Christian Lobby, uh, an organisation representing a number of um, uh, religious groups in Australia. They had become Israel Folau's main um, uh, supporter, uh, by which I mean uh, the Australian Christian Lobby had raised more than $2 million for Israel Folau's defence uh, and became his champion. So the... The, the bigger issue, if you like, um, which was the free speech debate in Australia, jumped onto the Falau um, bandwagon for a few months um, while it, uh, of service um, to the lobby. And then once the Falau um, issue itself was settled, the plan was for the, um, the Australian Christian lobby and other um, supporters of such a religious freedom uh, law uh, would would carry that forward uh, into what they hoped would be uh, a full scale reform um, of our free speech laws this year. Yeah, so that whole push for a um, uh, for a religious freedom bill, uh, which I'm, I must admit I, I was profoundly unconvinced by at the time, and I think I wrote I worked with the Sydney Morning Herald at the time and and wrote that it was a um, you know, it was a solution, profound, you know, desperately looking for a problem because there, there didn't appear to be a problem. The Flower case was often cited. Uh, there were, you know, we can go into the sort of a, a number of the arguments that occurred there as to whether Flower was actually stopped from making his comments or not is, 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 a, is a question in itself, of course, because no one was saying he couldn't make the comments. What the employer was saying, that Rugby, Rugby Australia was saying, was that you can't make those comments as the face of Rugby Australia, effectively, and, and, and so there was that sort of employment dimension to it. Um, but, but just to stick with the, you know, sort of big P politics of it for a moment, as you say, Malcolm Turnbull, the then Prime Minister, has delivered same-sex marriage, a fairly tortured process in the end, uh, something that had divided the governing uh, Liberal coalition, uh, mainly dominated Liberal Party, through that whole period, Malcolm Turnbull, a moderate and in favour of that marriage reform, eventually has delivered it by virtue of this plebiscite and then by legislation that upheld the um, the outcome of that plebiscite largely. Uh, and, but he feels that he's got a major political problem on his hands. As you say, there's the sort of 30, whatever it was, 38% of the electorate that uh, has voted against marriage reform. Uh, but but probably more important for Malcolm Turnbull is that there's a rump within his party room who is particularly energised about this issue. So as Malcolm Turnbull tended to do a number of times, and I think uh, to his to his own detriment in the end, he had a very, very close eye, weather eye, to the uh, the politics inside his party room. And so so shortly after that plebiscite, even before they've, um, they've legislated, uh, he comes up with this proposal for a religious freedom bill for an inquiry initially, uh, which would eventually result in, in at least a draft bill. So it's, it's, it's all tied up in that sort of conservative politics and these sort of biblical stuff and, and the Christian right, as you mentioned. Yeah, and um, it, it, even after Scott Morrison replaced Malcolm Turnbull as Liberal Party leader uh, and won the, the federal election, the Australian Christian lobby um, promoted it role as the uh, the kingmaker, if you like. It claimed credit for uh, the amount of work it had done in uh, marginal seats uh, in what it called the miracle election. 
Um, now, how, how much of this was um, uh, an organisation trying to, to blow its own trumpet uh, and uh, as opposed to how much was effective is, is almost a moot point uh, because the Australian Christian Lobby um, by late 2019 certainly saw itself as um, an inside voice uh, in uh, the Australian political process uh, and in due to the debt it felt that, uh, that, that Scott Morrison owed it. And, and we know that Scott Morrison is a member of a um, Pentecostal church, um, which is loosely aligned with the Australian Christian lobby, but not tightly aligned. And on the Falau issue, in fact, the leader of Scott Morrison's church, um, Brian Houston, um, had come out uh, as a, a voice against Falau. Um, so it was the, the the messages were even mixed up and the loyalties were mixed up within that group. It wasn't um, a monolithic Christian right um, uh, juggernaut speaking with one voice. Let's talk about the Christian lobby, the Australian Christian lobby, because um, you, you, there's a section in your book, in the early part of the book, where you talk about the day you spent at the Darling Harbour Convention Centre uh, watching Israel Folau be paraded by... Martin Isles, the, um, the the what is he the, the the chief managing director or whatever it is of the Australian Christian Lobby, uh, and and uh, Israel Folau is is being paraded there as this uh, this martyr really of um, you know this uh, political correctness movement that's trying to shut down uh, religious freedom and so forth. Take us through a, a little bit, paint the picture for us if you would of uh, of that day that you spent there and what what struck you about it. I went because it was the it was the only opportunity I had to um, you know hear Israel Palau speak in person. Um, he was only uh, doing at the end of um, the, uh, the the case or during the case. Um, he only spoke to Alan Jones and Peter Credlin. Uh, that was the only um, media interview he gave. And the only face-to-face interview he gave was to Martin Isles um, as a means of promoting the Australian Christian Lobby's annual conference. Um, it soon became apparent to me that um, uh, Israel Folau was the, um, the, the the kind of the uh, the sales banner out front, but the real the real story there was Martin Isles and his claims to um, being. Uh, you know, the person who'd, who'd done most to return the Morrison government uh, to power. This is a, a guy in his early 30s, um, a, um, a, a young um, parishioner from the Brethren uh, Church in, uh, in, in Queensland, um, an extremely proficient, uh, what you'd call a, a schoolboy or undergraduate debater, um, but he had also um, managed to uh, earn the um, almost fawning loyalty of the, the elders of the Australian Christian Lobby, the, the, the chairman, the previous chairs, you know, much older people than, than Martin Isles were, were proclaiming him almost, you know, with... Um, you know, Christ-like status as you know the young the young leader who's come forth to to, to you know um, shine the way towards um, the promised land for us. And what what you said before in the question about um, uh, it being a way of appealing to people who felt besieged by 
um, the forces of uh, forces of political correctness was very much the theme of the day. Um, it was very uh, to understand what the ACL and the audience were against and and uh, people, people, they mocked uh, people who believe in climate change. Um, uh, they... The, the cultural statement was um, a statement from people who, oddly enough, felt as if they were a kind of a, a defeated and marginalised minority, which, which sat slightly uncomfortably with the idea that they had returned the coalition to power, but that didn't concern them so much. It was a rallying, a rallying um, it was a rally for uh, those who wanted to make that cultural statement. And, you know, what we've seen in the United States over the last four years um, uh, is, uh, you know, not without its parallels. Um, those of us who wonder how 70-plus million people could vote for Donald Trump even now might find an answer in the uh, speculation that a lot of those millions of people are doing it as a cultural statement uh, about what they don't like and, and, and what they would like to keep out of their world. And um, uh, Martin Isles was using the same kind of... Um, uh, language and the same kind of presentation uh, to to rally his folk. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hi, I'm Sharon Bessel. Policy Forum Pod is the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. Each week we bring together expert analysis to tackle the big issues facing our region and to propose policy solutions. It's insightful, it's positive and it's always fun. Policy Forum Pod is out every Friday. You can find it on iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your pods. Or find us at policyforum.net slash podcasts. It's a fascinating moral kind of dilemma, though, for this constituency, isn't it? Because an objective observer, let's take Trump for a moment, and this is by no means a novel observation, but um, an objective observer would wonder how could the Christian lobby uh, with its moral positions line up behind so shabby an individual as Donald Trump? So, uh, you know, someone with such a history of hedonism, and misogyny and, you know, basically admitting sexual assault and being absolutely fast and loose with, um, with his business practices, with, uh, with the truth, uh, you know, just freely lying. Uh, essentially, uh, really not uh, in any way a model of, of, of Christianity as we would imagine Christians would see themselves. And yet, as you say, it becomes this cultural Statement. Do you see any um, parallels between the ACL and those uh, highly partisan Christian uh, Pentecostal movements in the United States? Is that is that you know the moral majority 
Cherry Falls, Old Thing, those kinds of organisations. It's it's highly political, isn't it? Yeah, look, you don't need me to see the parallels. The ACL itself has been quite uh, unembarrassed in um, uh, borrowing the, the techniques um, and the uh, language of the uh, um, evangelical right in the USA. Does that, the next question it leads you to is, does that have any future in Australia? Is it, you know, do you think of that as more a an American movement that is never going to quite sit right here because it feels such um, an import? And one of the, I, I guess one way of answering that is, you know, we, we eat as much McDonald's as, as anybody in the world and, and um, have been a colony of America for, for decades. Um, but the other way of looking at it that, that I found more fruitful was to um, go to the history of Australian Protestantism and um, it confused me at first because the, the Protestant church that, that I had grown up in and was sort of used to uh, was a church very firmly in the, the centre of our, um, uh, as one of our institutions of uh, conservative uh, power. And by that I mean they existed and they had their place regardless of, of what party was, you know, in in, in power in Canberra or elsewhere, um, when you looked at it, Australian history since colonisation a little bit further back, you saw that the, the evangelical movement had been probably the most strong continual thread uh, in Protestantism in Australia. And it, it went into something of an abeyance during the 20th century, but as religious belief uh, overall went into decline in the late 20th century. The one exception to that was, was evangelicalism uh, that, that grew its numbers and, um, and drew greater strength. And so if you look at the, the span of, uh, of um, Protestantism, at least in Australia, over that 200-year uh, period, you could say that the, the evangelicals have been um, uh, the most constant thread and that time in which they they seemed like a bit of a you know the bible bashing um uh fringe group that was the exception and and the rule which is re-emerging now uh the rule is that um those groups um are going to be the most prominent voices and i've got to say the the, the more religious belief declines the stronger um the political drive uh, of those who remain becomes, and the stronger their attraction to to religious people. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, you, on the day um, you said you you know described this day and, uh, and and some of the people there and the atmosphere in in this Darling Harbour Convention Centre, uh, and you say that eventually, after a certain amount of fanfare, Martin Niles and Israel Falau, uh, eventually Falau, Falau, sorry, eventually share the stage. And the result of that interaction you describe as somewhat underwhelming. In fact, so much so that Martin Niles realises that Izzy's perhaps too dull and interrupts to declare, Izzy Falau is to be admired because he makes complicated things so simple. Israel <laughs> is in, in a fiery trial because he did not bow to the gods of Babylon and their names are L, G, B, T and Q. So it's pretty clear where... Uh, where where it was going, what the uh, opinion of the organisation was, and indeed the level of energy that Martin Isles was bringing. It was really, I mean, Falau might have been the draw card 
but the show was really about Martin Isles and the and the ACL, the Australian Christian Lobby. Yeah, and, and this was the plan leading to the religious freedom bills that, that um, uh, we talked about before. Uh, the ACL was a, um, you know, extremely prominent uh, those bills, which up to, up to the, the, the pandemic crisis, uh, I don't know if um, they were going to uh, continue their passage towards becoming law, um, there were many more people who made submissions to that inquiry uh, who were opposed to it and, and, and many more who, who took the, the view that you, um, you voiced earlier about, um, you, you know, the, the, the problem wasn't there. It was being created by the process. Um, but the process was all about... Um, making uh, those people, such as the ACL, feel as if they were heard. And, of course, they didn't want to be just fobbed off as um, given given their little five minutes and told to go away. They believed and still believe um, that once things settle down, uh, they can still drive this through um, to, to the status of a, a law that privileges religious speech. So you think it's still alive? I don't think it's still alive. Uh, I can't imagine that, that it would be still alive. Um, but certainly certainly the ACL thinks it's still alive. Uh, and what has, what's been really interesting about the last nine months is that from April, from, from March through April, and, and that was during the time I was writing the book, I really thought, well, you know, one of the one of the silver linings of the of the pan- pandemic will be that these silly um, marginal arguments people have been having um, are going to be put into perspective and uh, taken not only off the back burner but off the off the stove completely. Um, as we went from that period of initial uh, crisis reaction and the uncertainty about how fast and how far it was going to go in Australia. Um, the debate on religious freedom didn't didn't really, you know, get its temperature anywhere near back to where it was in 2019, but it managed to attach itself to all of the other culture war causes that were reviving themselves and um, had the remarkable ability to... Um, uh, conscript the pandemic itself into the cause. Yeah. Uh, so um, we've seen, and, you know, we're talking about um, parallels with America, we've seen how probably between about um, June, July, June and July was the, was the kind of turning point where um, the, the sense of crisis abated somewhat and the response to the pandemic was politicised and, you know, the wearing of a mask was seen as a political statement. Now we have the wearing of the masks with Australian flag um, uh, and, and similar elsewhere in the world. Um, it, 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 it's remarkable just to see the power of this movement to grab a whole lot of unrelated issues and um, bring them under the same, the same roof that... Um, uh, still motivates the followers uh, in the way that religious freedom um, uh, had prior to the pandemic. It's almost politics by Venn diagram, isn't it, where you just sort of uh, work out what are these uh, 
what, what are these other issues that this constituency is by and large likely to hold dear and we'll sort of pull them all in together and package them up, uh, you know, for, for the cumulative sort of grievance value that you might be able to um, uh, give them and, um, and, and, yeah. and spout them back at people. Yeah, that, that, that's right. And, you know, you, you might wonder, as I wondered, you know, how is climate change part of this culture war debate and, and how is the pandemic part of it? But um, uh, They find a way. They find a way, and and um, you know it's it's guilt by association, if you like, that um, that progressive politics um, uh, uh, is is seen as aligned with um, uh, both um, belief in climate change and doing something about climate change, and reforming uh, marriage laws, which is which is the main driver for um, the the religious right. So they they become. E- Visible in in the eyes um, of uh, that movement. Just, I just, I was going to go to intersectionality, and we'll do that in just a sec. But just on the last point you made about you know the, the marriage laws, um, it struck me at the time I was very closely involved in reporting this. You know, through that period, uh, that um, there was a lot of heat about whether there would be a um, a, um, a free vote uh, in the parliament or whether there would be. A, um, you know, a, a national plebiscite. In the end, there was that kind of uh, there was that kind of thing run by the Bureau of Statistics, a, a statistical survey, uh, supposedly. But for all the opposition to it uh, on the on the progressive side of the spectrum, with people quite rightly arguing that the Parliament was put there to do the job and ought to legislate it, in the end, through that messy process, there was a very decisive public vote with a very high turnout, as you put, uh, you, you point out in the book, uh, a very high turnout of Australian voters and there's a very decisive result in you know, 62% thereabouts uh, in favour of marriage equality. That must have been a real thumb in the eye to the, the Christian lobby because, in a sense, it made the change far more durable. It was no longer something you could just roll back, get back, get your side back into politics, into, into government, uh, if you uh, if you if you don't regard them as there now, and you know, and, and legislate to take the marriage definition back to what it was, that's virtually impossible once you've gone through that plebiscite process. Do you think Turnbull was clever in that respect? <laughs> um, I I don't know, but um, politically, when when you talk to these people and when you when you hear these people. Um, Losing a debate and losing it decisively is almost better for them than, than winning it because the identification of themselves with um, uh, underdog um, yeah. victimhood is really important and and um, that's something that uh, you know if 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 you've lived through several decades, um, you're, you're almost in shock to see the um, the tools of victimhood being appropriated by um, a group of people who in many ways are traditionally very much not the, the, the victims and not the outsiders in Australian society. Um, but, you know, going back to the Howard's Battlers period, this has been a, mm-hmm. an effective um, tool of the political right um, and, you know, points to the... Points to the um, division within the, the the labor side of politics that they you know are wedged um, on uh, the the different parts of their constituency um, 
So on the matter of the, the same-sex marriage debate, I actually asked my, my own son, who, who is a Christian and um, he belongs to the Sydney Anglican Church, who've been, you know, quite out there um, at the more um, politically active edge um, uh, of these culture war driven politics for instance making a large donation to the no case um, in in the same-sex marriage debate and um, having a very forceful anti-same-sex marriage view even after um, legalization and I asked him I said you know how is it that you belong to this church, which is, you know, it's the oldest, biggest, most beautiful church in the heart of Sydney, uh, which you, with, you know, the Archbishop of the Anglican Church as your head, what could be more establishment than that? Um, and his his response, you know, fairly quietly was those people that, that, he, that he goes to church, which they feel that they're the losers. They feel that they've lost all the big arguments that they care about um, and they they have to fight this rearguard action. Um, and so losing the same-sex marriage um, vote so comprehensively um, only only entrenched that, um, that energy. Well, I mean, that's a very interesting point. I, I accept that it may have entrenched the energy, but I also think it's, uh, you know, it's made, it's made it pretty much impossible to... Uh, to roll it back um, because it, uh, for all the criticism that the process attracted, and I understand why that criticism, criticism was there and I, I shared some of it at the time, but I think in the end, it, like I say, I think it becomes more durable by virtue of the fact that you can't gainsay a free question put to uh, the, the, the public and when, um, you know, six in ten uh, vote one way, that's the way our system works. Um, but it's not just a problem, of course, on, I'm speaking now more about the, the issue from which same-sex morphed into, and that is this debate around Israel Falah, the particular subject of, of your report. Not just a problem for the right, is it? Um, and that's uh, why you mentioned at one point in the book this, this sort of challenge of intersectionality where some of the uh, interests, some of the values of the left cut across each other in the debate about Israel Folau, for example, his ethnicity, uh, for example, the role of, um, uh, of Christianity as a colonial tool right through the Pacific, uh, which has led to many people uh, from his part of the world holding these very strong religious views of a particular, of a particular kind. So, And then, of course, there's the whole question of, you know, cancel culture and and uh, where the left stands on freedom of expression. So this is, and this goes right back, I guess, to where we started this discussion. This is why this issue is so so difficult, I guess, because there are so many different currents and they're overlaying each other, overlapping each other. Yeah, yeah. So if you're, say you are a person with uh, what you think of as progressive politics, um, if you could simplify the Falau thing to an utterance of, of homophobia uh, that disgusted you um, and you could keep it inside that box, it would be a simple matter for you. Um, but as you allude to, um, uh, you know, the, the, the 
questions of colonisation and um, the Protestantism that colonised the Pacific Islands um, that fostered the um, religious adherence that now comes into Australia and sort of bounces back at, at the colonisers um, is a really interesting take on it. Um, similarly, uh, the um, uh, Labor lawyers, or uh, if, if, you, if you would say uh, lawyers who have um, defended the rights of employees um, against employers, uh, can make a very persuasive argument, um, not only from the Falau case, but from others where employees have um, lost their jobs for social media um, uh, performances. Um, uh, the, these lawyers have, have argued that this is way uh, out of line and, and uh, we're seeing a strengthening of um, employee, employers' power over employees' private time and, and their freedoms. Um, and so, can, I, can I interrupt you there, Malcolm? The two, two uh, yeah. cases which many people will know about will be this Falau case and the Scott McIntyre case from SBS back in, what was it, 2015, yeah. was it? Uh, yeah, 2015, because it was the centenary of Gallipoli. Um, yeah. And that's when he made a series of tweets, this SBS uh, sports uh, um, employee made a series of tweets in relation to Gallipoli, uh, which were, um, you know, fairly harsh, and SBS ended up sacking him. So there's a couple of really high-profile cases. But as you say, a great example of, of um, intersectionality in a way because you've got... Uh, people of the broadly of the left who would be who would see themselves as uh, interested in protecting employee rights, but at the same time uh, they would also be offended by homophobia, um, you know, by by the, the the agenda of the Christian right and and so forth. So it's uh, yeah, highly complicated. <laughs> it's not so much hard to know where you stand as hard to deal with the fact that you stand on both sides uh, simultaneously um, uh, of, of numerous fault lines. Do you think the two cases are, are, are as similar as some people would have? I would argue, for example, uh, that Falau is, um, is paid a vast sum of money, way above community, expect, you know, community standards for the job that he does. Uh, and that he is a the public face of an organisation, one of the public key public faces. Um, you know, there is this issue about uh, his rights versus the rights of, of what you might call big money. Uh, you know, the corporate Australia, Qantas and others who have investments in Rugby Australia as far as advertising goes, Rugby Australia itself. Uh, but at the same time, you've got Flower, who's no minnow in this process. He's in multi-million dollar salaries and the like, and none of that would be there were it not for all of that big money that is associated with him having a public profile. So even that's yeah, not easy yeah, to dissect. That's right, and and the architecture of those two cases is completely different because in, in Scott McIntyre's case, um, it was SBS, his employer, who, uh, you know, felt the repercussions for it or the potential repercussions, and SBS acted, if you like, on its own account. Uh, whereas in Falau's case, Rugby Australia admitted that it was acting as a, um, a proxy for 
uh, its main sponsor, Qantas, and other sponsors, and the, the chairman of Rugby Australia at the time, Cameron Klein, sort of said, oh, well, you know, we're not really taking a moral position on this, but if we kept on, we'd lose all of us Qantas, we're going to walk out, and um, Range Rover, we're going to walk out. And um, so it was kind of a business decision. Yeah, a pretty understandable one of that. Bill Pulver, the, um, the, the, what was he, the CEO, had already aligned uh, Rugby Australia with, um, with the same, you know, in favour of the yes case in the same-sex marriage plebiscite. So this was a long-term irritant of Phil Hours, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, and, and continues to be so, uh, by the way, because many of the um, uh, rugby players at the top level in Australia uh, sympathise with with Flowers views and uh, held the same views. Um, they were not uh, as vocal um, uh, in in pressing the views, but um, uh, they it you know it, it hasn't gone away just because Israel Flowers gone away. And and Rugby Australia had, uh, as you point out in the book, also it was the sort of the, the poor cousin of the two other major codes. Um, the major impact codes anyway, if we leave, leave uh, round ball football out of it, um, in the AFL and, and Rugby League. Rugby Australia was trying to rebuild its brand, uh, was trying to um, step forward and it had inclusiveness as one of its key values. So Falau's comments are completely at odds with that level of inclusiveness by, devalu- you know, by devaluing uh, the, the um, certain, you know, a, a whole class of people in society. So I, I don't have any trouble understanding why as an organisation it would say this is contrary to, our, to, the, to the image we are trying to put forward. And similarly with, with those sponsors, companies like Qantas, who had also been very strongly in support of the yes case. So you can see that argument there. The question was, did the contract reflect, uh, uh, you know, the, 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 um, had he ceded any ability to make public comments on these things? either by way of his contract or by way of undertakings given in, uh, for example, that first uh, counselling session he had with management. Um, yeah, a lot of us, not just journalists, a lot of us were really disappointed, disappointed that it didn't go uh, to court because um, each of these cases, and there's a, a growing number um, in Australia, um, where employees have lost their, their jobs, that they get settled or um, one way or another, they, they end um, before they proceed to the, the higher um, legal tribunals, which at least through case law could provide some, some clarity to these questions, but uh, we're still waiting for that one. Uh, look, we're very close to, to time. There's just one question here that I'm going to try and read to you from uh, someone called Mark Laurie. I've not had a chance to read this book yet. I'm wondering to what extent you or your book draw back to the influence of the European missionary effect on Polynesia and Israel Folau as a product of it. We've sort of touched upon that a bit already, but if you want to just very quickly uh, make an observation in response to that. Um, Look, it's really important when it comes to the question of leadership um, and within rugby uh, we have ever-growing numbers of, of Polynesian players who um, are not given leadership positions. Um, their way of um, 
expressing leadership is quite different from the uh, you know the existing ways that the rugby community accepts. And you could say that Israel Folau was trying to take a leadership role in a particularly Polynesian way. And um, I think one thing that could be learned, le- leaving aside the, the sort of strange rel- religious uh, views that Israel Folau might hold, um, institutions like sporting institutions need to broaden their ideas of, of what leadership means and how leadership is expressed. And um, uh, it, it won't do just to keep uh, considering Polynesian players as the colonised. Yes, thank you very much. It's a very interesting point. Um, look, Malcolm Knox, thanks uh, for joining us for this special Meet the Author Democracy Sausage session and good luck with Truth is Trouble, the strange case of Israel Falah. Um, it's been a real pleasure talking to you. I know we've had some technical difficulties, so I apologise profusely. Of course, they're, they're beyond our ability to, to handle as they, as they come up, uh, and I, I'm sure that many people understand that in this COVID-ravaged year, things are being done a bit differently, and uh, uh, these technical problems are unfortunately a bit of a fact of life, um, and, and I hope that you'll, you'll um, you know, uh, give us some leeway for that. As I say, Malcolm, thanks so much for joining us and good luck with the book. Uh, and thank you, everyone, for uh, sticking with us on, on this special Meet the Author series. I'm Mark Kenny. Bye for now. Yeah, thank, thanks, everybody. Thank you.